Well, it has been a while, but let's return to 1 Samuel. We'll pick up our study in chapter 15 tonight, 1 Samuel 15. Just to remind you, the theme of the book of 1 Samuel is lessons from the heart. We've looked at hearts that were, you know, right toward the Lord, um, hearts that were not right toward the Lord um, as we've gone throughout our study, and and tonight we're going to look at another lesson from the heart. But to give some context to uh, 1 Samuel 15, when Saul became king, God poured out his spirit upon him, and he turned Saul, the scripture says in 1 Samuel 10, 6, he turned him into another man, a humble man who led with grace and with courage. But after Saul's failure to wait for Samuel at Gilgal and the subsequent mass desertions from his army, Saul changed again, but not because God changed him. Instead of confessing and repenting of his sin, Saul hardened his heart. And thus, after God delivers Israel from the Philistines, Saul makes a decision that he will do whatever it takes never to allow his reign to become vulnerable again. And so if you were to read the end of chapter 14, you would see that Saul solidifies his power by warring against any nation who could threaten his kingdom after that victory over the Philistines. He is no longer going to put himself in a position where he's vulnerable. And by the time we get to chapter 15, God is now going to remind Saul that his job as king is not to fight his own personal enemies, it's to deal with the Lord's enemies. And so we'll see how Saul handles that reminder. So chapter 15, we begin in verse 1. It says, Samuel also said unto Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken then unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And so Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 footmen and 10,000 men of Judah. Here we see God's instructions to Saul to wipe out the Amalekites. In verse 1, we find a refreshing notion here that the Lord speaks to Saul once again. God had not been speaking to Saul, if you remember up to this point. Every time God, Saul had sought the Lord, the Lord had just not answered Um, because of Saul's uh, stubbornness and hard-heartedness and and refusal to repent. But here it says, that Samuel says to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you to be king over his people, over Israel. He reminds Saul that, Saul, you did not choose this position. I did. I put you here. And, And I put you in position to be king over my people, not your people, Saul, over Israel, those who are governed by God. This isn't your gig to do as you please. Your job isn't to secure your kingdom. Your job is to lead my people, the Lord tells him. And so after he pauses to let that sink in, he says, Now therefore, hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Listen to the Lord's instructions. Now, as I said a moment ago, this is the first time we see God speak to Saul since he disobeyed at Gilgal. It is almost as if the Lord says, That's, this is enough, Saul. <laughs> it's enough of the nonsense. You know, it's interesting. God has done this a couple times in Scripture. I think the most memorable to me is what he did with Abraham after the whole Ishmael fiasco. 
Remember the whole Ishmael situation where, you know, the Lord came to, to Abraham and said, Abraham, you know, you're going you're gonna to have a, a son and, and, you know, you're going to have your descendants are going to number the sand and the sea, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, and Abraham believed God and was counted him for righteousness. And then shortly thereafter, after many years go by and God doesn't fulfill that promise, um, Sarai comes to Abram at the time. He wasn't Abraham yet. Abram and says, hey, why don't you marry my handmaid and have a child through her? And that's how God will fulfill his promise. And Abraham goes, great idea, honey. Not a good idea. And for 13 years, God remained quiet. Did not say a word to Abraham. Until then, finally, Genesis chapter 17, verse 1 happens. And it's very similar to this verse here where it says, And when Abram was 90, 90 years old, 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. Enough's enough, Abraham. <laughs> Enough's enough. And I think that's kind of what he's doing with Saul here. You know, God's quietness toward us is an opportunity to draw near to him. It's not an opportunity to harden our heart or to assume he approves of my behavior. He's not saying anything. Don't wait for the two-by-four to get your attention, and don't harden your heart when he brings others who are pointing out the areas that need to change. You know, in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15, the Scripture has much to say in Proverbs just about receiving instruction. But in Proverbs 12, 15, it says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he that hearkens unto counsel is wise. You know, we very often, it's why we need church. It's why we need, why, why God gives us spouses. It's why God sometimes gives us kids. You know, I, I remember some of the most awkward moments are those times when me and Bev were having an argument and uh, one of the kids would come up to either me or her and say, you know, Dad, or you know, Mom, the Lord says this. And, you know, inside you're thinking, I'm going to knock you out. You know, <laughs> that's what you're thinking, you know. <laughs> Go to your room. <laughs> But the truth is, they're right, you know, and, uh, and, and the Lord does that. He, he, he says, you know, get out of your own, your own eyes, get out of your own view of things and allow other people to have input into your lives because we don't always see things correctly. We do see things foolishly at times. And if we're going to refuse correction, it says the fool will only, you know, look at what he sees and go, my opinion is the only one that, that's most important. Instead, a wise person receives correction, counsel, all throughout the Proverbs, it tells us that. So, what are God's instructions to get Saul back on track? Well, to do something that God had told Israel to do a long time ago. Verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel. You may have forgotten, but I have not. How he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all. Remember here, I made a joke about how God didn't forget, but the word he remembered doesn't mean to remember in the way we think of it. It actually means to take inventory or to count something. It's thus says the Lord of hosts, I have taken inventory of that which Amalek did to Israel. In other words, I, I have a number of things that I have counted that Amalek has done to Israel. And he specifically mentions how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Who is Amalek? Well, the, Amalek is short for the Amalekites. Uh, the Amalekites are descendants of Esau. And if you remember, Esau and Jacob didn't exactly have the best relationship growing up and as young men. These were descendants of Esau, but they did not settle down in the land of Edom, the land where Esau you know, settled down and spread out and became his own nation. The Amalekites became a tribe of raiding nomads who moved throughout the desert region south and east of Israel. And while we see in the scripture that Esau forgave Jacob, 
the Amalekites took up the grudge. The specific instance that the Lord mentions here is from Exodus chapter uh, 17. In Exodus 17, it mentions that as Israel had just come out of Egypt, they had recently just had the whole Red Sea experience, that then came Amalek, uh, this is Exodus 17, 8, then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, choose us out, men, and go fight. And so, you know, basically that's the war, the, the battle where, you know, they held up Moses' arms, they were winning, and they didn't, and he was losing, and, and all that. I don't have, want to go into that tonight. But it mentions in verse 14 of Exodus 17, and the Lord said unto Moses, after they won, write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. For I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And so Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nissi. One of the names of God we have is because the Lord said, I am, I am not done with Amalek. For he said, because the Lord has sworn. The, the phrase Jehovah Nissi means the Lord is my banner. The Lord is, is, is the idea is he's the one that goes before us to war. And so he called that place where he built the altar Jehovah Nissi, the Lord is my banner, because the Lord had sworn that the Lord would have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, that's the story there. You think, okay, well, they fought with Israel. People fight all the time. But that's not the full story. We get the full story later on when Moses is about to die. And in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 through 19, here we see why God was so upset about this. In Deuteronomy 25, 17, Moses reminds the nation of Israel who would go into the land after he would die, that he would not be around to make sure that this happened. He says in Deuteronomy 25, 17, remember, he tells them, don't forget what Amalek did unto you by the way when you were come forth out of Egypt. How he met you by the way and he smote the hindmost of you. Even all that were feeble behind you when you were faint and weary and that he did not fear God. It's not just that the Amalekites attacked Israel. They were preying upon the weak, the elderly, those who were exhausted and tired. They were picking off the weakest elements of, of Israel like the raiders that they were. And so the, Moses reminds him, therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies round about in the land which the Lord your God gives to you for an inheritance to possess it, that you shall blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget it. When you're done conquering the promised land, it's interesting, God told Israel to conquer the promised land, but to exist in peace with all of their neighbors that were outside the land. He said, you don't need to go to war with any of them. Exist at peace with them, with one exception. Everyone except the Amalekites. He said, when you're done conquering the promised land, you go deal with the Amalekites for good. For two reasons. Because of how horrible they treated you, how they were picking off your weak and your elderly, your sick, your, 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 those who were thirsty, those who were exhausted, and how they did not fear the Lord. What does that second part mean, that they did not fear the Lord? They didn't care what God thought is what that means. The fear of the Lord, the Bible says, is to hate evil. So uh, the best definition I've heard for fearing the Lord, it means to love what God loves and to hate what he hates. It's a good definition. The Amalekites had none of that. They didn't care what God loved, and they didn't care what God hated. They were going to do what they wanted to do. So God commands Israel to wipe out the Amalekites because they would never stop seeking vengeance against Israel. They would never stop fighting. But Israel never got around to it. And so God reminds Saul that you're the leader now. It's your job to obey this command and to do it with no compromise. Verse 3. Now go and smite 
Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. That phrase to utterly destroy, it means to devote to the ban. It's the same word that God used for Jericho. In other words, no spoils, no, no captives, everything and everyone is to be destroyed. Now, of course, when we read that, God's command to kill women and children, babies and animals, we can maybe understand, you know, some people are more comfortable with the idea of, of war, but the idea of commanding to kill women, children, babies and animals, to wipe everything out, that is a difficult thing to understand for many of us. They're innocent. I mean, the women and the children, the animals, the babies, I mean, what, what are they going to do? They, they can't fight back. It seems wrong and it seems unjust. Well, I covered this in great detail when we got God's command to exterminate the Canaanites, but I'd like to go over it a little bit again tonight. So a few thoughts I want to share with you on this. First off, I promise you this. God would have spared any and every Amalekite, man or woman, who would have repented instead of hardening their heart in opposition against Israel. If any of those people, if all of those people would have said, listen, we are wrong, we have taken up this vengeance against Israel, we have fought and fought and fought and fought and fought against Israel, but, but, but we're done. We realize we've done wrong, we, we want to repent, the Lord would have rescinded it, I promise you it. There is no way. And you say, how do you know that, Pastor Will? I know it because when they came into the promised land, God told them to wipe out all the Canaanites. And yet, when Rahab the harlot repented, God spared her and her entire family. When the city of Gibeon you know, feared the Lord, they were spared. And there were other groups that were spared as well. So I know God would do it because he's already done it in the past. The Canaanites, not a single point of them had to die. But they refused to repent. They continued to persist in their rebellion and their fight against God. The second thought I'd like to share with you is that Exodus 17 was not the last time that the Amalekites sought to wipe out the nation of Israel. The Amalekites joined the Moabite coalition who invaded Israel in Judges chapter 3. Deborah lists the Amalekites as part of the northern coalition who invaded Israel 80 years later in Judges 3 and 4. I'm, I'm sorry, Judges 4 and 5. Then 40 years later, they came back to it when they came back with the Amalekites, with the Midianites to invade Israel again in Judges 6. And after defeating Israel in battle in Judges 6, they would come back, the Amalekites, year after year after year to burn the survivors' crops and to steal whatever livestock Israel managed to procure. Their plan, their only satisfaction, would be with wiping Israel out completely. If there is one consistent theme of Israel's troubles during the time of the Judges besides their own sin, it was the Amalekites. They were involved in almost every offensive against Israel. They were not open to any kind of peace with Israel, and they would never stop trying to destroy Israel. Now, what do you do with someone like that? You, you can't do anything with someone like that. You can't reason with someone like that. God tried and tried and tried. It's interesting. There's a, a passage in, in Genesis where the Lord, when he talks about how, Abraham, I'm giving you this land, but not yet, because the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. In other words, horrible things were going on with the Canaanites. Awful things were going on with the Canaanites. They were rebellious against the Lord. They were slaughtering each other. It was a horrible cultural situation. And the Lord gave them 400 years of reasoning with them, of pleading with them to change, to repent, to stop. And they wouldn't. At some point, God is not a good God if he doesn't do anything about that. And so the Lord says the same thing with Amalek here. They will not stop trying to wipe you out. You must 
deal with them. There is only one sin that God will not forgive, and it's the persistent refusal to respond to the conviction of God's Spirit. If I persist in my stubbornness and my rebellion against God to my grave, the Lord's not going to go, oh, well, Jesus died for that. No. There is no forgiveness for that. There, if, if there, without faith, it's impossible to please the Lord. If there is no repentance, if there is, is no acknowledgement of my sin, if there's no turning to the Lord, there is no salvation. There is no forgiveness. That's why Jesus said all manner of sin against me can be forgiven. But if someone's going to slander the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit of bringing us to Christ, he's, if we're gonna, you're going to slander that. You're going to know the truth, have it revealed to you. The Holy Spirit's opening your eyes to the gospel, and you're going to go, I know it's true, and I don't want it. What does God do at that point? There is no sacrifice that covers stubborn rebellion persistent to the end. When someone rejects everything that God reveals to be true because they just don't want to bend the knee, the only option left is judgment. And Scripture testifies that this was Amalek's attitude. They did not fear God. You might be saying, okay, I get that, but why the kids? I can understand anyone who's old enough to make that choice, but why the kids? They're not old enough to understand. True. But any survivors would be trained with the same mindset. Because are you going to leave the children in the desert without any adults to care for them? The obvious answer to that is no. <laughs> that would be a result in the same exact thing, but only prolong the suffering. So what are you going to do? If you leave any Amalekite adults there, they're going to train them with the same exact vengeance. The only way to end this is the same way that God ended the wickedness of man with the flood, and it's the same way that God will end the wickedness of man in the Great Tribulation. You have to entirely destroy those who will not bend the knee. That's the only option at that point. Now, when Saul hears this message from the Lord, he decides to listen. And so he gathers Israel's army for war. And it's a good start, verse 4. And Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 footmen and 10,000 men of Judah. That is a far cry from the 600-man army that Saul had when he fought the Philistines the last time. This is a man who has organized his nation. He has mobilized his nation for war. He has fought numerous wars, as we saw in chapter 14. This is a different nation that Saul is leading now than when he first became king. Now, Telaim is a city in southern Judah near the border with Edom, so it's nearby where the Amalekites are. And in verse 5 it says, And Saul came to a city of Amalek, and he laid wait. He set an ambush in the valley. However, he noticed something, that there were others in the city who were not Amalekites. Verse 6, And Saul said unto the Kenites, Go, depart. Get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. Now, the Kenites are... They are relatives of Moses' father-in-law. You remember when Moses was, had to flee Egypt because he killed the Egyptian, and he ended up marrying Jethro, uh, his daughter. Um, I think Hinoam is her name. I'm not, I'm, I'm, thank you, that. Um, he, he, he married uh, Jethro's daughter, and, and Jethro's people then met Israel when they came out in the Exodus. And Moses convinced Jethro and some of his relatives to come to the Promised Land with the nation of Israel. 
And so those who traveled with Israel to the promised land, they were given land in Judah. They lived in the promised land. Those who remained behind ended up settling down in the same area where the Amalekites lived. Now, that's interesting because that proves to us that the Amalekites could live peaceably with their neighbors. They just refused to do so with Israel. They could do it, but they refused to do so. And so we see here that Saul's not bloodthirsty in, in this war, in this campaign against Amalek. He gives opportunity for this other group of people to get to safety before he attacks. And so verse 7, we see he, that happens, and then he attacks. And Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah until you come to Shur, that is, over against Egypt. Um, Havilah is the Arabian desert area south of Israel. Shur is the desert region south west of Israel and toward Egypt. So he drove them toward the sea and, and fought them, and it says that he won. Verse 8, and he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile and refused that they destroyed utterly. Despite Saul's effort against the Amalekites that he had this extended campaign, he does not follow through with God's commands. He spares Agag. Now, it was very common back then to keep foreign rulers prisoner so that you could parade them out to display your greatness at special events. For example, if you invited, you know, you had a contingent, you know, from uh, the uh, Sidonians were coming to, to visit, you know, and, 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 you know, having a diplomatic whatever, you'd have a big feast and you'd You'd make sure this guy was sitting at the table, you know, and you'd be like, yeah, this is how we deal with our enemies, you know. You were sending messages. And it was good to parade those things out because it made statements, clear statements, don't mess with us. And yet, that's not what God told him to do. In addition to this, it says he killed all the people with the edge of the sword, and yet he did not kill all the people with the edge of the sword because David ends up fighting the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 27, 8, and again in 1 Samuel 30, verse 1. Two decades is not enough time to rebuild an entire nation from just a few survivors, let alone make an army. So he did not kill all the people. And then thirdly, they took all these best of the livestock, Everything that was vile and refuse, that they killed. But they kept all the healthy animals, all the good stuff. Vile means that which is of little value. Refuse means that which is weak or unhealthy. Why do all this? Why spare Agag? Why not kill all the people like God said? Why take some of the spoils when God said not to? Well, because Saul and the people thought this was a better solution to the problem. I know what God said, but God's way isn't the best way. We've got a better idea. Some of these people and possessions are useless, but others have benefits for us. Now, we tend to call that incomplete obedience or compromise. However, the Bible calls it something else. Outright rebellion. <laughs> it's outright rebellion against the Lord. And even though Samuel wasn't there to see it, God certainly was. Look at verse 10. In verse 10 it says, Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repents me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the, pardon me, cried unto the Lord all night. It's interesting, the Lord said that it repents me that I have set up Saul to be king. 
Numbers tells us that God is not a, a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. And we think of repent as changing your mind. The word here does not mean that God changed his mind. It means to be in a state of sorrow over a person or event. God was heartbroken over Saul. I am heartbroken that I have set up Saul to be king. Why? For he is turned back from following me. The word there, turned back, he means he is turned around. He had been following me, but now he has turned around and he has decided to go his own way. And how does God know that? Because he has not performed my commandments. The word performed, it means to elevate, to cause something to have a high status. He has not put my commandments a high priority in his life. He has given them a low status. He has, uh, you know, uh, pushed them under rather than elevated them to a high importance. And can I say that God's heart is broken every time someone decides to give his commands a low status in their life? so that they can do what they want to do instead? Every single time, every single time God's heart is broken. Now, we all fall short. It's why we need a savior. But this is talking about a mindset. What status do God's commands have in your life? What is your mindset? Are you truly following Jesus? You know, Because there are times when Jesus tells me to go directions I don't want to go. You know, he says, hey, I want you to forgive this person, and, and next time you see him, you know, be nice to them. And, and I'm thinking, I don't want to see them again, let alone be nice to them. Jesus often leads me in directions that lead to my own personal death. Hey, I'm headed this way. What's that thing on your back? It's, it's a cross. Come, get yours too. I don't want to carry that. It looks scary. I think it leads to death. Yes, it does. It'll be good, though. Am I truly following Jesus, or am I going my own way? What status do God's commands in his word have in my life? Well, while this broke God's heart, it absolutely devastated Samuel. It says, and it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. The word grieved is a different word than repents. The word grieved here means to burn with anger. Samuel, when he first heard the news, I imagine his response was, Saul did what? He was livid. He was upset. He was burning with anger. Now, the scriptures tell us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, be angry and what? Don't sin, right? Sin not, the King James says. Be angry and sin not. You know, as I study my Bible, I am always shocked at how many new things there are to learn. I had no clue that was a quote from the Old Testament. I had no clue. Look at Psalm 4, verse 4 with me. Actually, I'm going to read it in the the New King James because the Old King James doesn't translate it very well. Psalm 4.4. I was so blown away by this. It's a song of David. And David in Psalm 4.4, here's the words. Be angry and do not sin. Just like Ephesians 5.26 quotes. But then it goes on. Meditate within your heart on your bed. And be still. Offer the sacrifices of 
righteousness. In other words, don't, don't go and bring a goat or a, or a lamb or something. Offer the sacrifice of righteous living, you know, of, of doing the right thing. And put your trust in the Lord. When are we supposed to meditate within our heart, on our bed, and be still? When are we supposed to, you know, off say, Lord, I'm going to offer to you my, my godly living. When are we going to put our trust in him? When we're angry. <laughs> when we're angry, that's what we have to do so we don't sin. I had never known that. It's fascinating because if you read the whole psalm, basically David's going, listen, the Lord came through for me. He came through for me. So all you people out there, he says, how long, are you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? How, how long are you going to just go do it your own way? Listen, be angry, he says, but don't sin. You can see something out there that's wrong and be angry about it, but what are you going to do now? What's the next step? That's where it's either right or wrong. And the only way we can ensure that we do that is to meditate within our heart on our bed, to be still, to commit to the Lord to do what's right, and to put our trust in him. David, I love what he says in Psalm 4, 6. He says, there are many who say, yeah, well, who will show us any good? You're telling me this is how I'm supposed to handle this situation? Who's going to show us any good? How do we fix this? That's what I want to go and fix this. David prays in response to that, Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You're the answer. Not us going out to try to fix it. You're the answer. You have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. You can go fix all the problems and it's not going to be the right answer. David says, for me, I'm going to lie down in peace, both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Isn't that cool? He says, are you angry about what you see going on around you? Fine. But seek God in prayer so that your attitude and actions remain obedient to the Lord. And because David did that, he could go to sleep in peace. I don't know about you, but that sounds like some good medicine right now. <laughs> some really good medicine. Samuel was angry at Saul for the repeated failures. He was angry for all the consequences the nation had already experienced because of his sin and would in the future experience because of it. But Samuel did not sin with that anger by taking action against Saul. He took that anger to the Lord and he prayed all night. He interceded for Saul all night long, and it says he did it with tears streaming down his face. You know, when I read about this, I think of James chapter 1. We read it in our scripture reading where the verse 19, it says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, swift to listen, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Why? For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God, right? Very similar to what David is saying. Be angry, fine, but don't sin. Don't act on it. Take it to the Lord so that you can offer the sacrifice of righteousness. Because if you don't, you're not going to bring about the righteousness of God. Your wrath is not going to produce anything righteous. And then he goes on. Verses 21 and 22 of James chapter 1 tell us what to do instead of act on our wrath against others or their actions. He says, wherefore, you lay aside all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. I didn't do the wrong thing. 
Yeah, but you're about to. <laughs> That's the point. You're about to. You're angry. <laughs> you're about to do the wrong thing. So get your heart fixed. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and all King James. Oh, you've got to have an old King James for this. All superfluity of naughtiness. What does that even mean? It means an overflow of wickedness, an abundance of wickedness. Lay that aside and get in the word. Receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. And don't just hear it, do it. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. James 1, 21 and 22 tells us what to do instead of act on our wrath. It tells us to focus on ourselves first. To run to God's word to remind ourselves of how we're supposed to behave. Because when we do that, we'll see that God tells us to love even our enemies and to pray for those who mistreat us, just like Samuel did for Saul. And if you haven't prayed all night for somebody that you're angry at, then you have no business confronting them. None. I remember there was a time. I received a phone call about a situation. And the phone call, as a pastor, made me very angry. And I got in my car to go deal with the situation. And I was ready to deal. I was Son of Thunder style. We were going to burn down a village, you know. You know, Jesus want to call now and want us to destroy an entire village because they didn't let you in? I would, I'm, I'd be like, where do I sign up for that ministry, you know? And I remember I was halfway there, and God is so gentle. And there's still small voices. I was stewing in the car, thinking about how, what I'm going to say and how I'm going to give it to him. And the Lord just said, you don't love them. It could have been, he could have shouted it from mountaintops. It wouldn't have been any clearer in my ear. You don't love them. And I just had to stop. I pulled off to the side of the road. I just sat there for a good 30 minutes until I was crying, crying out for them, asking God to work in their heart, to go before me, to give me the words to say, to help me to love them, to help me to do the right thing, to get out of myself. If you haven't prayed all night for somebody, then you have, when you're angry with them, you have no business confronting them yet. Well, Samuel did do that. And so having spent all night in prayer for Saul, it says that he left to go confront Saul. In verse 12, and when Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, well, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set him up a place, and now he's gone about, and he's passed on and gone to Gilgal. Basically, that's long and short for saying Saul's kind of taken the scenic route on the way home. But he didn't go home, he went all the way to Gilgal. Now Gilgal is the place where Israel had a lot of big celebrations. So the idea here is Saul is taking the scenic route through Israel, going the roundabout way, likely parading his captured king in the spoils of war, the big victory parade. And then he heads to Gilgal for a big, massive victory celebration. And so Samuel heads there, verse 13, and Samuel came to Saul and Saul said unto him, as Samuel comes in to this big, huge celebration that's going on, Saul walks out and he's like, blessed be thou of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. You know, he basically saying, he's saying, Samuel, come and be blessed with the rest of us. I obeyed the Lord and God has honored it. You know, you almost want to start playing the do-do-do-do-do-do-do, you know, the Twilight Zone music, you know. Like, what world are you living in, Saul? 
Why would Saul presume that God had blessed him when he clearly violated God's commands? Well, Saul's measuring stick is a wrong measuring stick. You see, remember the last time Saul disobeyed God, how did things go? Really bad. Really bad. Soldiers were deserting him. The Philistines overran Israel, and he was on the run from the Philistines for months. But this time, he disobeyed the Lord. None of that happened. They won. Things are great, you know. They're having a party. They're having a parade. God finally must be okay with my way of doing things, is what he's thinking. Come and be blessed, brother. We did it. God's honoring us. Before we mock Saul's mindset as ludicrous, this mindset is all too common today. God has to be okay with what I'm doing. Look at how blessed my life is. I just got a promotion at work. You know, my kid just got this scholarship. You know, this is going on. This is going on. Things are good. Certainly God can't be upset at me about this. He can't be displeased with this. I hear that frequently. But that is an improper way to measure whether I'm pleasing God or displeasing God. The only way to know if I'm pleasing God or not is if I'm doing what he says. That's the only way to know. And so Samuel brings up this inconsistency. He goes, in verse 14, he says, What means then this bleeding of sheep in my ears and lowing of oxen which I hear? If that's true, Samuel, that, that God is honoring you and you've obeyed him, then why am I hearing all these animals making noises? And Saul said, Oh, I didn't do that. They brought them from among the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord your God, and the rest will be utterly destroyed. I didn't do that. They did that. The people did. Even if that's true, even if that's true, when a leader has the ability to stop people from doing evil, and they do not, that leader is guilty of the evil. Leaders don't get the privilege of saying, not my fault, when they do nothing to stop evil from happening. And good leaders, when they fail, they don't blame others. They take responsibility for their actions or their inactions. Now, he mentions here, they spared the best, but it's for a good cause, to sacrifice unto the Lord he says, notice, your God, not my God. Shows you how their, him and his relationship with the Lord has not been good. To sacrifice unto the Lord your God. This was the justification that Saul and the people used. Well, we're going to do this for good. It's for a good cause. It's for the Lord. I know it's the wrong thing, but it's for a good cause. You know? I, I know, I know it, it, it's, 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 it's not righteous, but it's a good policy. But that plan ignores God's clear command that everything the Amalekites owned was already devoted to the ban. That phrase means God's already taken it for himself. Taking it was like stealing from the Lord so you could give it back to him. That's absurd. <laughs> you know, you might be grateful if someone returns something that they stole from you, but you're not going to look at it and go, oh, for me? What a gift. You would never do that. This was offensive to the Lord. The Lord wasn't happy with this. He wasn't pleased with this. And so Samuel pulls Saul aside. Verse 16, then Samuel said unto the Lord, stay. And I love that. It, it, it's, very, it's very pleasant in the King James, but in the Hebrew it's a, not as pleasant. It means stop talking. You know, stop talking. 
Every time you open your mouth, you're getting into more trouble. Stop talking, and I will tell you what the Lord has said to me this night. And so Samuel sa Saul said unto him, say on. And Samuel said, in other words, you've got the floor. I'll shut up. Verse 17. And Samuel said, when you were little in your own sight, were you not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed you king over Israel? The word there little means insignificant. It means of low status when you were to compare some, that whatever that thing was to a similar kind. You know, little would be, you know, like if I had, um, uh, well, if I had my Corolla or I had a Corvette, you know. The Corolla's little. <laughs> the Corvette is not, <laughs> you know. Um, it would be considered an insignificant vehicle comparison, by comparison for its beauty and firepower and all that kind of jazz. So this idea here was you didn't see yourself as, you know, top of the line. You, you saw yourself as insignificant. That was when God made you king over Israel. And you know, it's interesting because he's actually quoting Saul's own words back to him. When Samuel told Saul that he was going to be king, Saul said this. He said, am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? And is not my family the least of all the families of the tribes of, of tribe of Benjamin? Why do you speak to me this way? I'm nobody special. Those were Saul's own words. He says, but back then, back then, that's when God made you king over Israel. That was a good place to be when you were humble. Where did you get this idea that you were so important you didn't need to listen to the Lord anymore? That's what he's asking him. Where did you get this new idea that you're so important you didn't need to listen to the Lord anymore? Verse 18, and the Lord sent you on a journey, a mission. And he said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore, why? Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? But you did fly upon the spoil, and you did evil in the sight of the Lord. I have heard a lot of unbiblical things from people I considered to be decent Bible teachers in the last couple years. One of them is that policies are more important than character. Leaders in the Bible, I'm, you can believe that, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Leaders in the Bible are never evaluated by their policies. They are always evaluated by the response to God's commands in his word, Always. You read every single king and he'll say, such and such king reigned over Israel and he did that which was what? Either good or evil in the sight of the Lord. That's it. It doesn't say, oh, he made the nation prosperous. Oh, he built this thing. Oh, he did this. He had good, it doesn't say any of those things. It either says he did evil or he did good in the eyes of the Lord. That's it. And so because Saul didn't obey the Lord, he had done evil no matter how prosperous the nation had become under his rule, and it had. When Saul first starts off, he's out you know, as king. What's he doing when he gets the news that the uh, Midianites had invaded? He's out taking care of his own cattle. By the time we see him in, again in his hometown, he's in a palace. Things had changed. Israel had prospered. They had been victorious over their enemies. Their land had increased. The nation had become strong. And yet the Lord says that he did evil. Now, Samuel asks him, why? Why did you do this evil in the eyes of the Lord? And this would be a great opportunity for Saul to finally go, you know what, I blew it. 
to acknowledge his wrong and to repent, but sadly he does not. Verse 20, it says, And Saul said unto Samuel, Yes, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. The phrase there, yes, it's really hard to translate in the Hebrew, but its biggest equivalent is, what? You've done evil in the eyes of the Lord, Saul. What? What are you talking about? That's the most close way I can make it an equivalent to his, yes, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. It's, what? What are you talking about? We won, man. Why are you giving me such a hard time in a day we should be celebrating? We won. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I did go the way which the Lord sent me. And I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites without even realizing the contradiction that comes out of his own mouth. You can't utterly destroy if King Agag is here. But the people, you know what? I didn't do anything wrong, but you're, you're right about the people, Samuel. You're right. They should not have done that. The people... They took of the spoils, sheep and oxen, the chief of the things that should have been utterly destroyed. They did it, but they did it for a good reason. The sacrifice unto the Lord. I realize that's wrong now, though. They, they shouldn't have done that. I didn't do anything wrong, but they shouldn't have done that. That is some serious stubbornness on Saul's part. But again, it's very common today. I talk to many people who see the faults in everyone else but have no clue that they are present in their own life. There's no self-examination. There's only self-deception. And that's why in James chapter 1 it tells us, be doers of the word, not hearers only, lest you deceive yourselves. That's what happens when you, you compromise or have incomplete obedience. You're actually rebelling against the Lord and you end up deceiving yourself. Saul really believes that taking Agag captive was right. He's looking at Samuel and he's just going, really, man? He's just one dude. He's far more used to me alive than dead. I can be a far better leader for God's people by taking him captive. Surely God understands that, Samuel. No, Saul. God does not understand that. And this prompts Samuel to utter one of the most famous sections in all of Scripture. In verses 22 and 23, Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? The obvious answer is no. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams because rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the voice, the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Now, start off here he asks the question, has the Lord his great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? Great question. What, what pleases God the most? You know, is it our songs? Is it our, 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 our tithe? Is it our service? What pleases God the most? And Samuel says, behold, which means pay attention to this. It means we all, if, if you haven't heard anything I've said tonight, Samuel's telling you pay attention to this. Behold, To obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. The best part you can give to God in an offering, to hearken, is better than that. What does it mean to obey? The word here, obey, means to believe information and then respond appropriately to it. To hearken means to accept information as true and respond to it. So what information am I to believe, accept as true, and respond correctly to? 
his commands, his word, right? That's the information. God is far more pleased when I do what his word commands me to do than any song I sing, service I do, or offering I give. Now, does that mean singing or serving or giving is not important? Not at all. That's not my point. The things we do at church are very important. But it's far more important to simply do what he says in his word each day. To simply do what he says in his word each day. Because there is a lot in our Bible that has nothing to do with the activities we do when we have church. A lot. Now, why is this so? Why is disobedience so bad? Why does it displease the Lord so much? Verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Rebellion means a state of disobedience, resistance, or opposition to the person in authority. So, a state of disobedience, resistance, or opposition to the Lord's authority in our lives, it's equivalent to witchcraft. Witchcraft here refers to divination. That was the, the pagans, they would, uh, they would use various means uh, to determine the future through signs, through omens, whether it was the stars, whether it was through looking at the liver of a, a sacrificial animal. There was all sorts of ways that they would have these uh, methods to determine the future. So God says resisting, disobeying him, opposing his authority in our lives is like trying to determine the future through signs or omens. How is rebellion like that? Well, when you go to a fortune teller to learn your future, you're letting someone else's, eyes, someone else's ideas direct your life, right? Like they're telling you, oh, here's what I see in your future. You need to avoid, you know, anyone like this, and you need to take this opportunity that it's going to come up in the next few years or whatever. You're letting someone else's ideas guide your life, direct your life. So how is rebellion like witchcraft? Well, when I disobey the Lord, I'm putting my trust in my own ideas to, re- to direct my life. I'm the diviner, you know? I'm, I'm the fortune teller, you know? I'm saying, I know how the future will turn out if I do what you say, God, so I am not going to do what you tell me to do, or I'm going to modify what you tell me to do to get a better result. That's why it's the same. I'm the diviner. I'm the fortune teller. I'm the one looking at the liver, except the liver is just my own thought processes. You know, the stars in the sky are just my own thought processes. It's no different. And stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Now, Iniquity, it means a public idol. They would call it a wicked thing. That's what iniquity is uh, in this context here. It, it, it's like this, this evil, abominable thing that's sitting out in the town square, you know? Idolatry here refers to the teraphim. These would be like household idols you'd have. So in other words, they're both words that refer to idolatry. So stubbornness is like idolatry. What is stubbornness? Well, it's when we display arrogance by insisting on our own way. That's what Saul did here. He did this. He was stubborn by repeatedly justifying his actions. I did obey the Lord. I did obey the Lord. I did obey the Lord. When he clearly didn't. So how is insisting on my own way like worshiping another God? Well, again, because I'm the idol. I'm worshiping myself when I insist on my own way. I'm the idol. I'm the thing I'm bowing down to. See, Saul dressed up his actions in nice clothing, saying, it's just Agag. I killed everybody else. But underneath those clothes was an idol. No, my kingdom needs this guy. I, I, I can't kill him. I need him here. I need to use him. I have a better way. That wicked thing that's underneath is rejection of God's word, of God's commands. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you 
also from being king. The dictionary defines to reject as to dismiss as inadequate, inappropriate, or not to one's taste. And that's what it means to have a heart of rebellion. God's commands in the Bible aren't enough for me. They don't apply to my situation. They don't please me. I don't need them in my life. And so when I have a heart of rebellion, it means I modify God's commands or I outright ignore them. And when somebody confronts me about it, I insist I've done nothing wrong. Listen, Saul wasn't a bad king because he had failures. We all have failures. Every leader has failures. If you want to nitpick a leader's failures, well, good luck finding a good leader because you'll never find one if that's going to be the case. We all have failures. The reason Saul was a bad king wasn't because of his failures. I would dare say that he had far less failures than David had. And yet God calls David a man after God's own heart and he tells Saul that he was a man of idolatry and witchcraft. Why? Saul was a bad king because he had a heart of rebellion. Now, I don't put much stock in New Year's resolutions, but I think every day is a good day to resolve to reject a heart of rebellion. Don't you say? <laughs> you know, to say, no, I don't want, that's not going to be me today. I think every day is a good day to humble myself before the Lord and to recommit myself to doing what his word says. You know, I go out and sit on my front porch and open my Bible and sit down with the Lord. And every time, I mean, sometimes, there are, very often it's the Lord, you know, he'll just have a comforting word for me because I need to be cheered up, I need to be comforted, I need to be encouraged, need to be strengthened, you know, need to be reminded of his promises. So surely that happens. But very frequently, I would say more frequently than anything else, the Lord says, hey, Will, <laughs> can we talk about this? And that's when I have a choice. The Lord never, ever flogs me because he goes, hey, let's talk about this. You blew it. No. He says, hey, let's reason together about this. Come, let us reason together. I want to forgive you for this. I want to change you. I want to make you different. Will you bend the knee? Will you let me be king? Will you follow me? Will you deny yourself? That's, that's the opposite of a heart of rebellion, right? That's a heart I want to have. Let's all stand. <clears throat> Lord, I know that's true of my, my brothers and sisters out here tonight, that that's their desire. They want to have a heart that's yielded to you. Lord, not a heart that's stubborn, not a heart that, that rebels against you, not a heart that looks to themselves, you know, for, for wisdom, that looks to themselves for, for the way to go, that worships themselves because, you know, they, they, they set their own ideas above you and, and they refuse to be corrected by you. I know that's their heart, Lord. And so as you see all of our desires tonight, that we long to be those who, who just follow you no matter where it leads, even when it leads to places that are uncomfortable and, and, and th places we don't want to be pruned. We trust you that you're a loving Heavenly Father, that you withhold no good thing from us and that every good and perfect gift comes down from you, the Father of lights. So Lord, if there are areas that need to be pruned, we give you free reign tonight. Have your way. Even as we sang earlier, be that consuming fire, Lord, that just, you know, burns away the dross, that takes away, prunes away the, the dead, you know, the dead branches that, that need to spring forth in new ways. Lord, have your way in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.